0: The Notch on the Axe, Part One, of the Lock and Key Library. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Rick Cornwall. The Lock and Key Library, edited by Julian Hawthorne. The Notch on the Axe by William Makepeace Thackeray, Part One. The Notch on the Axe, a story à la mode editor's note here thackeray reduces to an absurdity the literary fashion of the day the vogue for startling stories and tales of terror which was high in his time and which influenced several of the stories which preceded in this volume but while dickens made fun with mental reservations while bulwer leighton tried to explain by rising to the heights of natural philosophy and montrin did not explain at all but let his extravagant genius roam between heaven and earth Thackeray's keen wit saw mainly one chance for exquisite literary satire and parody. At one point, or another in this skit, the style of each principal sensational novelist of the day is delightfully imitated. Part I Everyone remembers in the fourth book of the immortal poem of your blind bard, to whose sightless orbs, no doubt, glorious shapes were apparent, and visions celestial, how adam discourses to eve of the bright visitors who hovered round their eden millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth unseen both when we wake and when we sleep how often says father adam from the steep of echoing hill or thicket have we heard celestial voices that to the midnight air soul or responsive to each other's notes singing after the act of disobedience when the erring pair from eden took their solitary way and went forth to toil and trouble on common earth. Though the Glorious Ones no longer were visible, you cannot say they were gone. It was not that the Bright Ones were absent, but that the dim eyes of rebel man no longer could see them. In your chamber hangs a picture of one whom you never knew, but whom you have long held in tenderest regard, and who was painted for you by a friend of mine, the Knight of Plimpton. She communes with you, she smiles on you, When your spirits are low, her bright eyes shine on you and cheer you, her innocent sweet smile is a caress to you, she never fails to soothe you with her speechless prattle. You love her, she is alive with you. As you extinguish your candle and turn to sleep, though your eyes see her not, is she not there still smiling? As you lie in the night awake, and thinking of your duties, and the morrow's inevitable toil oppressing the busy, weary, wakeful brain, as with a remorse, the crackling fire flashes up for a moment in the grate and she is there your little beauteous maid smiling with her sweet eyes when moon is down when fire is out when curtains are drawn when lids are closed is she not there the little beautiful one though invisible and present and smiling still friend the unseen ones are around about us does it not seem as if time were drawing near when it shall be given to men to behold them The print of which my friend spoke, and which indeed hangs in my room, though he has never been there, is that charming little winter piece of Sir Joshua, representing the little Lady Caroline Montague, afterwards Duchess of Boeckleck. She is represented as standing in the midst of a winter landscape, wrapped in muff and cloak, and she looks out of her picture with a smile so exquisite that a herod could not see her without being charmed. I beg your pardon, Mr. Pinto, I said to the person with whom I was conversing. I wonder, by the way, that I was not surprised at his knowing how fond I am of this print. You spoke of the Knight of Plympton. Sir Joshua died 1792. And you say he was your dear friend? As I spoke, I chanced to look at Mr. Pinto, and then it suddenly struck me. Gracious powers! Perhaps you are a hundred years old, now I think of it. You look more than a hundred. Yes, you may be a thousand years old, for what I know. Your teeth are false. One eye is evidently false. Can I say that the other is not? If a man's age may be calculated by the rings around his eyes, this man may be as old as Methuselah. He has no beard. He wears a large, curly, glossy brown wig, and his eyebrows are painted a deep olive green. It was odd to hear this man, this walking mummy, talking sentiment in these queer old chambers in Shepherd's Inn. Pinto passed a yellow bandana handkerchief over his awful white teeth, and kept his glass eye steadily fixed on me. Sir Joshua's friend, said he, you perceive, eluding my direct question. Is not everyone that knows his pictures Reynolds' friend? Suppose I tell you that I have been in his painting room scores of times, and that his sister Thea has made me tea, and his sister Toffee has made coffee for me. You will only say I am an old ombog mr pinto i remarked spoke all languages with an accent equally foreign suppose i tell you that i knew mr sam johnson and did not like him that i was at the very ball at madame cornellis's which you have mentioned in one of your little what do you call them bah my memory begins to fail me in one of your little whirligig papers suppose i tell you that sir joshua has been here in this very room have you then had these apartments for more than seventy years i asked they look as if they had not been swept for that time don't they hey i did not say that i had them for seventy years but that sir joshua has visited me here when i asked i the man sternly for i began to think he was an impostor. he answered me with a glance still more stern sir joshua reynolds was here this very morning with angelica kaufman and mr oliver goldschmidt He is still very much attached to Angelica, who still does not care for him, because he is dead, and I was in the fourth morning couch at his funeral. Is that any reason why he should not come back to earth again? My good sir, you are laughing at me. He has sat many a time on that very chair which you are now occupying. There are several spirits in the room whom you cannot see. Excuse me. Here he turned around as if addressing someone, and began rapidly speaking a language unknown to me it is arabic he said a bad patois i own i learned it in barbary when i was a prisoner among the moors in anno 1609 bin ick all this get till g'hagen. ah you doubt me look at me well at least i am like perhaps some of my readers remember a paper of which the figure of a man carrying a barrel around formed the initial letter and which i copied from an old spoon now in my possession as I looked at Mr. Pinto, I do declare he looked so like the figure on that old piece of plate that I started and felt very uneasy. Ha! said he, laughing through his false teeth. I declare they were false. I could see utterly toothless gums working up and down behind the pink coral. You see, I wore a beard then. I'm chafed now. Perhaps you think I'm a spoon. Ha <laughs> Ha! And as he laughed, he gave me a cough which I thought would have coughed his teeth out his glass eye out his wig off his very head off but he stopped this convulsion by stumping across the room and seizing a little bottle of bright pink medicine which being open spread a singular acrid or aromatic odor through the apartment and i thought i saw but of this i cannot take an affirmation a light green and violet flame flickering around the neck of the vial as he opened it by the way from the peculiar stumping noise which he made in crossing the bare boarded apartment i knew at once that my strange entertainer had a wooden leg over the dust which lay quite thick on the boards you could see the mark of one foot very cleanly and pretty and then a round o which was naturally the impression made by the wooden stump i own i had a queer thrill as i saw that mark and felt a secret comfort that it was not cloven in this desolate apartment in which mr pinto had invited me to see him there were three chairs one bottomless a little table on which you might put a breakfast-tray, and not a single other article of furniture. In the next room, the door of which was open, I could see a magnificent gilt dressing-case, and some splendid diamond and ruby shirt-studs lying by it, and a chest of drawers, and a cupboard apparently full of clothes. Remembering him in Baden-Baden in great magnificence, I wondered at his present denuded state, you have a house elsewhere mr pinto i asked many says he i have apartments in many cities i lock them up and they do not carry much i then remember that his apartment at baden where i first met him was bare and had no bed in it there is then a sleeping room beyond this is a sleeping room he pronounced it dis can this by the way give any clue to the nationality of this singular man If you sleep on these two old chairs, you have a rickety couch, if on the floor, a dusty one. Suppose I sleep up there, said the strange man, and he actually pointed up to the ceiling. I thought him mad, or what he himself was called an umbug. I know, you do not believe me. But why should I deceive you? I came but to propose a matter of business to you. I told you I would give you the clue to the mystery of the two children in black, whom you met at Baden and you came to see me if i told you you would not believe me what for try and convince you ah hey and he shook his hand once twice thrice at me and glared at me out of his eye in a peculiar way of what happened now i protest i cannot give an accurate account it seemed to me that there shot a flame from his eye into my brain while behind his glass eye there was a green illumination as if candle had been lit in it It seemed to me that from his long fingers two quivering flames issued, sputtering, as it were, which penetrated me and forced me back into one of the chairs, the broken one, out of which I had much difficulty in scrambling, when the strange glamour was ended. It seemed to me that when I was so fixed, so transfixed in the broken chair, the man floated up to the ceiling, crossed his legs, folded his arm as, as if lying on a sofa, and grinned down at me. When I came to myself, he was down from the ceiling, and taking me out of the broken cane bottom chair. Kindly enough. Bah, said he, it is the smell of my medicine. It often gives the vertigo. I thought you would have had a little fit. Come into the open air. And we went down the steps, and into Shepherd's Inn, where the setting sun was just shining on the statue of the shepherd. The laundresses were trapezing about. The porters were leaning against the railing and the clerks were playing at marbles, to my inexpressible consolation. "'You said you were going to dine at the Grey End's coffee-house,' he said. "'I was. I often dine there. There is excellent wine at the Grey's End coffee-house, but I declare I never said so. I was not astonished at his remark, no more astonished than if I was in a dream. Perhaps I was in a dream. Is life a dream? Are dreams facts? Is sleeping being really awake?' i don't know i tell you i'm puzzled i've read the woman in white the strange story not to mention that story stranger than fiction in the cornhill magazine that story for which three credible witnesses are ready to vouch i have had messages from the dead and not only from the dead but from people who never existed at all i own i'm in a state of much bewilderment but if you please will proceed with my simple my artless story well then we passed from shepherd's inn into holborn and looked for a while at woodgates bric-a-brac shop which i never can pass without delaying at the windows indeed if i were going to be hung i would beg the cart to stop and let me have one look more at the delightful omnium gatherum and passing woodgates we came to Gale's little shop number forty-seven which is also a favorite haunt of mine mr Gale happened to be at his door and as we exchanged salutations mr pinto i said will you like to see a real curiosity in this curiosity shop step into mr gale's little back room in that little back parlor there are chinese gongs there are old sacks and severs plates there is a fustenberg carl theodore worcester amstel nankin and other jim crockery and in the corner what do you think there is there is an actual guillotine if you doubt me go and see gale high holborn number forty seven it is a slim instrument much slighter than those which they make now some nine feet high narrow a pretty piece of upholstery enough there is the hook over which the rope used to play which loosened the dreadful axe above and look dropped in the orifice where the head used to go there is the axe itself all rusty with a great notch in the blade As Pinto looked at it, Mr. Gale was not in the room, I recollect, happening to have been just called out by a customer who offered him three pound fourteen and sixpence for a blue shepherd in Pate Tendre. (laughs) Mr. Pinto gave a little start and seemed crisp for a moment. Then he looked steadily toward one of the great porcelain stools which you see in the gardens. And, it seemed to me, I tell you, I won't take my affidavit. I may have been maddened by the six glasses I took of that pink elixir, i may have been sleep-walking perhaps as i am as i write now i may have been under the influence of that astounding medium into whose hands i had fallen but i vow i heard pinto say with a rather ghastly grin at the porcelain stool nay nefer shag your gory locks at me thou canst not say i did it he pronounced it by the way i did it by which i know that pinto was a german I heard pinto say those very words and sitting on the porcelain stool i saw dimly at first then with an awful distinctness a ghost an eidolon a form a headless man sitting with his head in his lap which wore an expression of piteous surprise at this minute mr gale entered from the front shop to show a customer some delft plates and he did not see but we did the figure rose up from the porcelain stool shake its head which it held in its hand, and which kept its eyes fixed sadly on us, and disappeared behind the guillotine. Come to the Gray's Inn coffee-house, Pinto said, and I will tell you how the notch came to the axe. And we walked down Holborn at about thirty-seven minutes past six o'clock. If there is anything in the above statement which astonishes the reader, I promised him that in the next chapter of this little story he will be astonished still more. Section 2 you will excuse me i said to my companion for remarking that when you addressed the individual sitting on the porcelain stool with his head in his lap your ordinarily benevolent features this i confess was a bouncer for between ourselves a more sinister and ill-looking rascal than one p i have seldom set eyes on your ordinarily handsome face wore an expression that was by no means pleasing you grinned at the individual just as you did At me when you came up to the seal, pardon me, as I thought you did when I fell down in a fit in your chambers, and I qualified my words in a great flutter and tremble. I did not care to offend the man, I did not dare to offend the man. I thought once or twice of jumping into a cab and flying, of taking refuge in Day and Martin's blacking warehouse, of speaking to a policeman, but no one would come. I was this man's slave, I followed him like his dog i could not get away from him so you see i went on meanly conversing with him and affecting a simpering confidence i remember when i was a little boy at school going up fawning and smiling in this way to some great hulking bully of a sixth-form boy so i said in a word your ordinarily handsome face wore a disagreeable expression and etc it is ordinarily very handsome said he with such a leer at a couple of passer-byers that one of them cried oh crickery there is a precious guy and a child in its nurse's arms screamed itself into convulsions oh oui je suis très cholet garçon en plus certainement continued mr pinto but you were right then that that person was not very well pleased when he saw me there was no love lost between us as you say and the world never knew a more worthless miscreant i hate him voyez-vous i hated him alive i hate him dead i hate him man i hate him ghost and he know it and tremble before me if i see him twenty thousand years hence and why not i shall hate him still you remarked how he was dressed in black satin breeches and striped stockings a white peak waistcoat, a gray coat with large metal buttons, and his hair in powder. He must have worn a pigtail, only only it was cut off. Ha, ha, ha! Mr. Pinto cried, yelling a laugh which I observed made the policeman stare very much. Yes, it was cut off by the same blow which took off the scoundrel's head. Ho, ho, ho! And he made a circle with his hooked nailed finger around his own yellow neck, and grinned with a horrible triumph i promise you that fellow was surprised when he found his head in the pannier aha did you ever cease to hate those whom you hate fire flashed terrifically from his glass eye as he spoke or to love those whom you once loved oh never never and here his natural eye was bedewed with tears but here we are at the gray's inn coffee-house james what is the joint that very respectful and efficient waiter brought in a bill of fare AND I, FOR MY PART, CHOSE BOILED LEG OF PORK AND PEAS PUDDING, WHICH MY acquaintance SAID WOULD DO AS WELL AS ANYTHING ELSE, THOUGH I REMARKED HE ONLY TRIFLED WITH THE PEAS PUDDING, AND LEFT ALL THE PORK ON THE PLATE. IN FACT, HE SCARCELY ate ANYTHING, BUT HE DRANK A PRODIGIOUS QUANTITY OF WINE, AND I MUST SAY THAT MY FRIEND MR. HART'S PORK WINE IS SO GOOD THAT I MYSELF TOOK, WELL, I SHOULD THINK, I TOOK THREE GLASSES, YES, THREE, CERTAINLY. He, I mean Mr. P., the old robe, was insatiable, for we had to call for a second bottle in no time. When that was gone, my companion wanted another. A little red mounted up to his yellow cheeks as he drank the wine, and he winked at it in a strange manner. I remember, said he, musing, when port wine was scarcely drunk in this country, though the Queen liked it, and so did Hurley. But Bolingbroke didn't. He drank Florence and Champagne. Dr. Swift put water to his wine. Jonathan, I once said to him, But, bah! ultra temps, Autre Another magnum, James. This was all very well. My good sir, I said, It may suit you to order bottles of twenty port at a guinea a bottle, But that kind of price does not suit me. I only happen to have thirty-four and sixpence in my pocket, Of which I want a shilling for the waiter, And eighteen pence for my cab. You rich foreigners and swells may spend what you like. I had him there, for my friend's dress was as shabby as an old-clothes man. But a man with a family, Mr. What-do-you-call-him, cannot afford to spend seven or eight hundred a year on his dinner alone. Bah, he said, nonki pays for all, as you say. I will what you call stamp the dinner if you are so poor. And again he gave that disagreeable grin and placed an odious crook nailed and by no means clean finger to his nose. But I was not so afraid of him now, for we were in a public place, and the three glasses of port wine had, you see, given me courage. What a pretty snuff-box, he remarked, as I handed him mine, which I am still old-fashioned enough to carry. It's a pretty old gold box enough, but valuable to me as a relic of an old, old relative, whom I can just remember as a child, when she was very kind to me. Yes, a pretty box. I can remember when many ladies, most ladies, carried a box, nay, two boxes, tabateer and bonbarrier. What lady carries snuff-boxes now, hey? Suppose your astonishment if a lady in an assembly were to offer you a priest. I can remember a lady with such a box as this, with a tour, as we used to call it then, with panniers, with a tortoise-shell cane, with the prettiest little high-heeled velvet shoes in the world. Ah, that was a time, that was a time. Oh, Eliza, Eliza, I have thee now in my mind's eye. At Bungay on the Wavne did I walk with thee. Eliza, ah, did I not love thee? Did I not walk with thee then? Did I not see thee still? This was passing strange. My ancestress, but there is no need to publish her reverend name, did indeed live at Bungay St. Mary's, where she lies buried. She used to walk with a tortoise shell cane. She used to wear little black velvet shoes, with the prettiest high heels in the world. "'Did you—did you know, then, my great-grandmother?' I said. He pulled up his coat sleeve. "'Is that her name?' he said. "'Eliza.' There, I declare, was the very name of the kind old creature written in red on his arm. "'You knew her old,' he said, divining my thoughts with his strange knack. "'I knew her young and lovely.' I danced with her at the Bury Ball. Did I not, dear Miss... As I live, he here mentioned dear Grinney's maiden name. Her maiden name was... Her Honored married name was... Nothing. She buried your great-grandfather the year Poseidon won the new market plight, Mr. Pinto dryly remarked. Merciful powers. I remembered over the old shagreen knife and spoon-case on the sideboard in my granny's parlor, a print by Stubbs of that very horse. My grandsire, in a red coat, and his fair hair flowing over his shoulders, was over the mantelpiece, and Poseidon won the Newmarket Cup in the year 1783. Yes, you were right. I danced a minuet with her at Berry that very night, before I lost my poor leg, and I quarreled with your grandfather. Ha! And as he said, ha, there came three quiet little taps on the table. It is the middle table in the Gray's Inn coffee-house, under the bust of the late Duke of Wellington. I fired in the air, he continued. Did I not? Tap, tap, tap. Your grandfather hit me in the leg. He married three months afterward. Captain Brown, I said. Who could see Miss Smith without loving her? She is there. She is there. Tap, tap, tap. Yes, my first love. But there came tap tap, which everybody knows means no. I forgot, he said, with a faint blush stealing over his wan features. She was not my first love. In germ in my home country there was a young woman. Tap tap tap. There was here quite a lively little treble knock, and when the old man said, But I love thee better than all the world, Eliza, the affirmative signal was briskly repeated. And this, I declare upon my honour. "'There was, I have said, a bottle of port wine before us. "'I should say a decanter. "'That decanter was lifted up, "'and out of it into our respective glasses two bumpers of wine were poured. "'I appealed to Mr. Hart, the landlord. "'I appealed to James, the respectful and intelligent waiter, "'if this statement is not true. "'And when we had finished that magnum, and I said, "'for I did not now in the least doubt her presence, "'Dear Granny, may we have another magnum? "'The table distinctly rapped, "'No.' Now, my good sir, Mr. Pinto said, who really began to be affected by the wine, you understand the interest I have taken in you. I love Eliza. Of course I don't mention family names. I knew you had that box which belonged to her. I will give you what you like for that box. Name your price at once, and I'll pay you on the spot. Why, when you came out, you said you had not sixpence in your pocket. Bah! Give you anything you like. Fifty, a hundred, a 1, thousand pound. "'Come, come,' said I, "'the gold of the box may be worth nine guineas, the face "'and the faison we will put at six more. One thousand guineas!' he screeched. "'One thousand and fifty-pound dear!" "'And he sank back in the chair. "'No, by the way, on his bench, "'for he was sitting with his back "'to one of the partitions of the boxes, "'as I dare say James remembers. "'Don't go on in this way,' I continued rather weakly, "'for I did not know whether I was in a dream.' If you offer me a thousand guineas for this box, I must take it, mustn't I, dear Granny? The table most distinctly said yes, and putting out his claws to seize the box, Mr. Pinto plunged his hook nose into it, and eagerly inhaled some of my forty-seven with a dash of hardman. But stay, you old harpy, I explained, being now in a sort of rage and quite familiar with him. Where is the money? Where is the check? James, a piece of notepaper and a receipt stamp. "'This is all mighty well, sir,' I said, "'but I don't know you. "'I never saw you before. "'I will trouble you to hand me that box back again "'or give me a check with some known signature.' "'Whose? Ha, <laughs> ha, ha!' "'The room happened to be very dark. "'Indeed, all the waiters were gone to supper, "'and there were only two gentlemen snoring in their respective boxes. "'I saw a hand come quivering down from the ceiling, "'a very pretty hand, on which was a ring with a cornet, "'with a lion rampant gulls for a crest.' I saw that hand take a dip of ink and write across the paper. Mr. Pinto, then taking a gray receipt stamp out of his blue leather pocketbook, fastened it to the paper by the usual process, and the hand then wrote across the receipt stamp, went across the table, and shook hands with Pinto, and then, as if waving him adieu, vanished in the direction of the ceiling. There was the paper before me, wet with the ink. There was the pen which the hand had used. Does anybody doubt it? I have that pen now, a cedar stick of not uncommon sort, and holding one of Guillot's pens. It is in my inkstand now, I tell you. Anybody may see it. The handwriting on the cheque, for such the document was, was the writing of a female. It ran thus: London, midnight, March thirty first, eighteen sixty two. Pay the bearer one thousand and fifty pounds. Rachel Sidonia. To Messrs Sidonia, Posse ansanto and Company, London. Noblest and best of women, said Pinto, kissing the sheet of paper with much reverence. My good Mr. Roundabout, I suppose you do not question that signature. Indeed, the house of Sidonia, Posse Santo and Company is known to be one of the richest in Europe. And as for the Countess Rachel, she was known to be the chief manager of that enormously wealthy establishment. There was only one little difficulty. The Countess Rachel died last October. I pointed out this circumstance and tossed over the paper to Pinto with a sneer. Set the Bronde Ul sir, he said with some heat, you literary men are all imprudent." But I did not tink you such fools we dis. Your box is not worth twenty pound, and I offer you a thousand because I know you want money to pay that rascal's Tom's college bills. This strange man actually knew that my scapegrace, Tom, had been a source of great expense and annoyance to me. You see, money cost me nothing, and you refuse to take it. Once, twice, will you take this check in exchange for your trumpery snuff-box? What could I do? My poor Granny's legacy was valuable and dear to me, but after all, a thousand guineas are not to be had every day. Be it a bargain, said I. Shall we have a glass of wine on it? says Pinto, and to this proposal I also unwillingly acceded, reminding him, by the way, that he had not yet told me the story of the headless man. Your poor grandmother was right just now when she said she was not my first love. 'Twas one of those banal expressions, here mister P blushed once more, which we use to women. We tell each she is our first passion, they reply with a similar illusory formula. No man is any woman's first love. "'no woman any man's. "'We are in love in our nurse's arms, "'and women coquette with their eyes "'before their tongue can form a word. "'How could your lovely relative love me? "'I was far, far too old for her. "'I'm older than I look. "'I'm so old that you would not believe me "'were I to tell you. "'I have loved many and many a woman "'before your relative. "'It has not always been fortunate "'for them to love me. "'Ah, Sophronia!' round the dreadful circus where you fell and whence i was dragged corpse-like by the heels there sat multitudes more savage than the lions which mangled your sweet form ah uh, tenay when we marched to that terrible stake together at valley dolo the protestant and the jay but put away that memory boy it was a happy for thy grandam that she loved me not during that strange period he went on when the teeming time was great with the revolution that was speedily to be born i was on a mission in paris with my excellent my maligned friend Caligstero. mesmer was one of our band i seemed to occupy but an obscure rank in it though as you know in secret societies the humble man may be a chief and director the ostensible leader but a puppet moved by unseen hands never mind who was chief or who was second never mind my age it boots not to tell it why shall i expose myself to your scornful incredulity or reply to your questions in words that are familiar to you but which you cannot understand words are symbols of things which you know or of things which you don't know if you don't know them to speak is idle here i confess mr p spoke for exactly thirty-eight minutes ABOUT PHYSICS, METAPHYSICS, LANGUAGE, THE ORIGIN AND DESTINY OF MAN, DURING WHICH TIME I WAS RATHER BORED, AND TO RELIEVE MY ennui, DRANK A gl- HALF GLASS OR SO OF WINE. LOVE, FRIEND, IS THE FOUNTAIN OF YOUTH. IT MAY NOT HAPPEN TO ME ONCE, ONCE IN AN AGE, BUT WHEN I LOVE, THEN I AM YOUNG. I LOVED WHEN I WAS IN PARIS. BETHILDE, BETHILDE, I love THEE, OH, HOW FONDLY. WINE, I SAY, MORE WINE. Love is ever young. I was a boy at the feet of Bethilde de Béchambel, the fair, the fond, the fickle. Ah, the false! That strange old man's agony was here really terrific. And he showed himself much more agitated than when he had been speaking about my grandmother. I thought Blanche might love me. I could speak to her in the language of all the countries, and tell her the lore of all the ages i could trace the nursery legends which she loved up to their sanskrit source and whisper to her the darkling mysteries of the egyptian magi i could chant for her the wild choruses that rang in the disheveled illusion revel i could tell her and i would the watchword never known but to one woman the saban queen which hiram breathed in the asmal ear of solomon you don't attend pshaw, you've drunk too much wine "'Perhaps I may as well own that I was not attending, "'for he had been carrying on for about fifty-seven minutes, "'and I don't like a man to have all the talk to himself. "'Blanche de Bichamel was wild, then, about this secret of masonry. "'In early, early years I loved, I married a girl as fair as Blanche, "'who, too, was tormented by curiosity, "'who, too, would peep into my closet, "'into the only secret guarded from her a dreadful fate befell poor fatima an accident shortened her life poor thing, she had a foolish sister who urged her on i always told her to beware of anne she died they said her brothers killed me a gross falsehood am i dead if i were could i pledge you in this wine was your name i asked quite bewildered was your name pray then ever Bluebeard. hush the waiter will overhear you he thought we were speaking of Blanche de Baschamo. I loved her, young man. My pearls, and diamonds, and treasure, my wit, my wisdom, my passion. I flung them all into the child's lap. I was a fool. Was strong Samson not as weak as I? Was Solomon the wise much better when Bacchus wheedled him? I said to the king, But enough of that. I spake of Blanche de Beshamo. <laughs> Curiosity was the poor child's fobile. I could see, as I talked to her, that her thoughts were elsewhere, as yours, my friends, have been absent once or twice to night. To know the secret of masonry was the wretched child's mad desire. With a thousand wiles, smiles, caresses, she strove to coax it from me. From me! Ha <laughs> ha! I had an apprentice, the son of a dear friend, who died by my side at Rossbach, when Soubise, with whose army I happened to be suffered a dreadful defeat for neglecting my advice the young chevalier gobi de mouchet was glad enough to serve as my clerk and help in some chemical experiments in which i was engaged with my friend dr mesmer bathilde saw this young man since women were has it not been their business to smile and deceive to fondle and lure away from the very first it had been so and as my companion spoke he looked as wicked as a servant that coiled round the tree, and hissed a poison counsel to the first woman. One evening I went, as was my wont, to see Blanche. She was radiant. She was filled with spirits. A saucy triumph blazed in her blue eyes. She talked. She rattled in her childish ways. She uttered in the course of her rhapsody a hint, an intimation, so terrible that the truth flashed across me in a minute. Did I ask her? She would lie to me, but I knew how to make a falsehood impossible, and I ordered her to go to sleep. At this moment the clock, after its previous convulsions, sounded twelve, and as the new editor of the Cornhill Magazine-and he, I promise you, won't stand any nonsense-will only allow seven pages, I am obliged to leave off at the, at the very most interesting point of the story. End of the notch on the axe, part one. Recorded by Rick Cornwall.